As I've considered my preaching ministry at Emmanuel, there are certain sermons, certain texts that seem to stick out for various reasons. Uh, This morning's text has been one of the more convicting texts personally that I've interacted with. And I suspect that as a result, you too will experience um, portions of today's message that are hard to hear. Um, Nevertheless, we entrust these things to the Lord. It is his word and he has a plan. Uh, So we'll engage Matthew chapter 16 this morning. I want to start with a simple statement, one that you know to be true, and that is that American Christianity degrades biblical Christianity. American Christianity is about the self. It's about me. American Christianity is is self-exaltation. It's a type of religion that's focused on personal preferences, where feelings and desires, they, they trump truth. It's a religion where I come to Jesus when I need something. American Christianity is the religion of self. It's self-preservation. This is a consumer-driven religion. It's occupied with comforts and with ease, with safety and with security. It's a religion that obeys Jesus only when there's no risk. American Christianity is the religion of self. It's self-insulation. It does not share. It does not serve. It cannot recall the last time. It shared the gospel with the lost. It holds a low view of you, of God's people, of his church. It's a religion that fits Jesus into my kingdom, not me, to his. For the American Christian. Serving others is is inconvenient. The sacrifice is repellent and suffering. Suffering's out of the question. It speaks very favorably of Jesus. It has good things to say. It gives to his causes. It sings to him. It even prays to him. But it's a religion that will not pay a price. American Christianity is not far from from any of us. It's not the acquaintance who is living on the other side, on the other coast of these states. It's the neighbor living beside us without a fence, calling us, inviting us, reassuring us. This morning, Jesus rescues us from this counterfeit religion. He explains three necessary habits of biblical Christianity. In a word, he teaches us discipleship. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Every Christian is a disciple. Discipleship describes what it means to follow Jesus. Our message comes from Matthew chapter 16. We'll look at verses 24 through 28. I want to rewind a little bit, going back to verse 21, just to gain some context for what Jesus mandates. Again, though, the focus of our message will be verse 24. That verse alone contains three imperatives or three commands. That verse is a charge to anyone who wants to come after Jesus, to all who wish to be a Christian. This is what it looks like. Verses 25 through 27, then go about reinforcing that charge. 
Our Lord is, is always flawless in his logic. And he'll then explain why someone would want to do this. Why follow Jesus? Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, we begin in verse 24. We note that our passage takes place at a point in time. The first word of the verse is the word then. Then Jesus said to his disciples. When? Well, we can just go back a few verses. In verse 21, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. In verse 22, Peter rebukes him. He says, no way, no how will this happen to you, Jesus. And in verse 23, Jesus rebukes Peter. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. It is an American Christianity. A religion that tells Jesus no hard things. Not if we can help it. This, then, is the context in which Jesus preaches discipleship. He preaches biblical Christianity. This is the one true religion. It's one invitation given to everyone. Jesus says, if anyone wishes. That means this morning, if you desire to follow Jesus, if you would want to follow him, what comes next is for you. Christ tells you exactly what it means to come after him or to come and follow him. He says, first, deny yourself. Discipleship is denial. He must deny himself. She must deny herself. Self-denial here is the first condition one must meet to follow Christ. Jesus does not say you should deny yourself. He does not say you could deny yourself. He does not say you might deny yourself. He says you must. Some of your Bible versions read, let him deny. That translation isn't wrong. In fact, it's it's quite accurate. But at the same time, in English, the, the force of the command is lost. 
Typically in modern conversation, when we use the word let, we're trying to uh, communicate some kind of permission or some kind of allowance. Jesus is going further than that. In the Greek, it's a command. Each of our three points this morning, in fact, they're all commands. He must deny himself. He must take up his cross. He must follow me. And when Jesus speaks of denial this morning, he speaks of rejection. Rejection. It's it's that same word that will be used of Peter the night that he rejects Christ. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Same word. In essence, Peter says, I do not know him. He said on that fateful night, I renounce him. That is the type of attitude. That is the the level of denial that we are to have toward ourselves, specifically our old self. Now, just to be clear, it might be helpful to articulate what this does not mean. Jesus here is not teaching that you are to go without something, to starve yourself of life's joys. That is not what he's teaching. He's not saying you may never again watch a movie. You may never again enjoy the the many pleasures, the many good gifts that God gives you in this life. He's not saying you may never again eat abnormally large dishes of ice cream. That's not what Jesus says. He is not attempting in any way to withhold good from your life. He's not teaching us self-hatred either. We're not to, to hate ourselves. That's not what Jesus teaches. And he's not teaching something called asceticism. An ascetic is someone who is uh, intentionally depriving themselves of pleasures in a way to be more spiritually good. This group of people are known for their denial, and church history has its share of ascetics. There's Simeon Stylites. Allegedly, he lived atop a pillar for 37 years. There's Anthony the Great. He lived 13 years in the desert eating only bread, salt, and water. There's Mary of Egypt. Supposedly, she set off into the wilderness with only three loaves of bread, and then she'd live off the land after that. These types of self-denial, that's not what Jesus speaks of here. He speaks instead of denying our flesh. Again, the old self, those desires and those passions, anything that would come between us and Jesus Christ, deny them. Anything that interferes with obedience to Jesus, that is to be denied. Instead of making our lives about us, he says, deny yourself and follow me. Make your life about Jesus. Well, this is hard to do because the flesh is still alive and well. Do you feel it this morning? Do you feel your flesh calling you, tempting you? Boy, it's so good. Insatiable desires. The flesh always pointing back to me and to what I want. Our hearts asking questions like, what about me? Are you putting me first? Am I benefiting from this? But Jesus says to follow him, we must say no. 
our interests, our hobbies, our schedules, all of these things, they no longer drive the train. Jesus does. It's no longer what I want, but what Christ wants. That's what it is to deny ourselves. And if there's anything that comes between us and him, he says, deny yourself. Secondly, he teaches discipleship is suffering. He must take up his cross, or she must take up her cross. The cross is an instrument of death. A cross was a physical piece of wood. It'd be used to deliver death to an individual. We, we, we know the concept well from the crucifixion of our Lord. But your cross, the one Jesus speaks of, is a spiritual cross. It's something that you and I must carry. It's something that's going to, to lead us to spiritual death if we don't. In the days of Rome, they, the, 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 um, the condemned, they carried a cross And when they did, it meant rejection, and it meant reproach. Those carrying the cross were embarrassed. And if in that day you had happened upon such a man, you saw him carrying his cross, you probably would have encountered a very large crowd because it was quite a spectacle to see. People would be gawking at the man. The road would be lined with spectators, multiple rows deep. You would have heard the Roman soldiers hurling insults and abuse at the man in the street. The crowd themselves goading and agitating. And the man condemned, the man carrying his own cross, suffered. Tasting his own blood mixed in with the salt of his sweat. Choking on the dust of the road. It was a hard road. That's what it was to carry a cross, and it meant suffering. It was a march to the death. It was marked by cruelty and by shame, all coming from the watching world. And it is this image that Jesus chose to teach us discipleship. This is what it is to follow me. So, what exactly is a cross? Some will say, oh, my wife, she is my cross to bear. That's not you. Others, what do they say? My my job is my cross. My, My health is my cross. Some bad decision I made is my cross. All of these things may be difficult. They may be hard. But that's not what Jesus is driving at in verse 24. A cross is an instrument of death one chooses to carry. One picks this up to carry for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you an example coming from the perspective of just the average Christian man. The average Christian man will will go to work. And he'll wake up in the morning and he'll go to his job and there'll be things about his job that, that he doesn't like or things about his job that he hates or the boss is hard to get along with. The average Christian man may have children who are getting in in trouble at school or his, his best friend may be suffering from cancer. These are all trials. They're all very real forms of suffering. They're hardships to be sure, but they are not a cross. The average Christian man will struggle with lust, laziness, or anger. These three, at least one of the three, 
It's going to be typical for every average Christian man. Some men will struggle with two, some all three. But every one of them, left unchecked, leads to death. Unless a man fights his lust, unless a man resists anger, unless a man wrestles laziness, he cannot follow Jesus. This would be but one example. I ask you this morning, what is your cross? We may have crosses in common, they may be different, but each of us has a cross to bear. Are you picking it up and following Jesus? Notice in the text, Jesus does not say, nor does he at any other point, that you need to be perfect. He does not say you even need to overcome it. He says you need to take it up. And I want to go even further than that. Because at Emmanuel, as part of this church family, you're going to encounter brothers and sisters carrying crosses. And as we do life together and you grow to love these people, you're going to want to take that cross from them. And you're going to want to see them living with ease and security and comfort. I understand that, but I'm not sure that that's what Jesus wants. Not on this side of heaven anyway. Not that we are taking crosses from one another. Instead, we are to each take our cross and walk alongside one another. None of this cross-bearing is a situation where we're in and of ourselves, where we're by ourselves, where we're alone. Each of us has the Lord with us, and each of us has one another, each of us bearing our own cross side by side. To come after Christ is to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses. And thirdly, we're to follow Jesus. Discipleship is following. He must follow me. She must follow follow me. You see that as the third and final command in verse 24. Jesus is the one we follow. Note that. It's not me. It's not some other pastor. It's not a denomination. It's Jesus. For our kids in the room, it's not mom and dad. It's Jesus. American Christianity reverses this. It puts Jesus in the back seat. I'm the one driving the car. He's along for the ride. I'll lean over and talk to him in the back seat when I need something. But other than that, I'm driving. Jesus follows me. Jesus exists for me, for my interests. This is all backwards. And in fact, it's illustrated well by the American Christian publishers. I went back just a few years to, to pull a couple of best-selling books that I, I recalled off the top of my head. Do you ever remember the prayer of Jabez? Bruce Wilkinson, the prayer of Jabez, breaking through to the blessed life. That book sold nine million copies. American Christianity ate it up. It's a formula. If you prayed a certain prayer, God, in some form of a cosmic Santa Claus, would give you whatever you wanted because you said the prayer right. Remember Joel Osteen, Your Best Life Now? That book was so successful, they turned it into a board game. Jesus does not exist to make our lives happy or safe or comfortable. He exists to be worshipped and imitated and followed. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ. 
And like the other two verbs of verse 24, these other two commands, we've already seen them. Follow is a command. If we're going to be his disciples, we have to follow him. This Greek word is in the present tense. That is to say, the biblical Christianity, it does not lie in the past. Our faith is not predicated upon a baptism, upon walking an aisle, upon praying a prayer. All of those things may be important events that God used to draw us to him, but none of them saved us. We were saved by the Holy Spirit washing us through the regeneration of his word. And it's a present tense faith. I follow Jesus. I follow him today. I follow him now. It's in the active voice, meaning that it is I performing the action. I am the one following him. Again, we mentioned this. My faith is my own. It's not the faith of my mom. It's not the faith of my dad. It's not the faith of my spouse. I have come to Jesus, and I follow him. There are many things in our lives that we do, in fact, inherit. We might inherit hair color or or skin tone, but we never inherit our faith. That is not genetic. We have to come to a point, again, by the washing of the Spirit, where we trust in Jesus and then where each of us follows him. Taken together, no one bumps into Christianity. We don't fall into it. We don't float into the kingdom. It's with specific intention. Mark this. It's with strenuous exertion. That is how we enter the kingdom. In these three commands, Jesus invites each of us to be his disciple. He is not veiling or or disguising what is involved in following him. In fact, with, with great clarity, I would call it a disturbing clarity, he invites us to come be a Christian. And he now tells us why. Verse 24 is a strong message. We might call it a hard saying. But graciously, our Lord now tells us why this is so firm. And again, using flawless logic, he he gives three reasons why we would come after him. I think all of our Bible versions have it. We can follow that little word for. There's three appearances in three verses. Verse 25, verse 26, verse 27. Three reasons hanging off this word. There's the reality of eternity in verse 25, the priority of the soul in verse 26, and the surety of judgment in verse 27. Verse 25, the reality of eternity, Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we live our physical lives pursuing ease, and safety, and comfort. If we live our lives pursuing the here and now, there can be no eternal life with Christ. But if we live our physical lives, these 70, 80 years, whatever God has ordained for us, if we live them for Jesus Christ, there will be eternal life with him. And not only this, but life lived for the present the one that lives for the self, the one set upon the physical, the materials and wealth and stuff, this life lived for self-preservation, that's not living at all. How many professing Christians have never experienced the profound spiritual pleasure God seeks to give when they go all in on Jesus? 
That's why there's joyless Christianity, because we have yet to experience the fullness of life by abandoning ourselves and living for Christ. I want to say it this way. This is a, a quote from a veteran of World War II. He was a lieutenant colonel in the 101st Airborne. And I find it interesting because what makes for success in combat, as he articulates it, makes for success in Christianity. He says, quote, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. You see, the American Christian cannot function as he should because he has not died to himself. To quote the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, I die daily. He understood that death to himself and his own priorities and his own pleasures, that had to come first if he's at all to be successful living for Christ. Jesus teaches that eternal life is a reality, and to attain it, we live for him. We live for him here, and we live for him now. Secondly, he also teaches the priority of the soul. The priority of the soul. Verse 26, Jesus asks, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The soul, the the soul is infinitely more valuable than the physical body. The spiritual is of greater value than the physical. In verse 26, Jesus speaks of this Man who has it all. In our day, it'd be a Jeff Bezos or or an Elon Musk. Someone who's achieved all all the flesh values, all of the power and the glory and the wealth, they have it. It's the parable of the rich man in the barns. This is Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells this parable, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he says, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for you for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? No gain in this life can compare with the loss of the soul. The soul is of infinitely more value than any physical body. A few years ago, a book was published entitled, the coddling of the American mind. And I believe it was in this book that the first time a word was used, a word was coined, and that word is safetyism. Safetyism. Quote, it's the cult of safety, an obsession with eliminating threats, both real and imagined, to the point at which people become unwilling to make reasonable trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. This is 
written, I believe it was 2018, and almost as though to test it out, COVID comes along in 2020. And safetyism is God. Why? Because all the world knows is the physical. That's it. They have no concept of the soul or the spiritual. They not only have no concept, but those things cannot matter to them because they don't understand them. They certainly have no interest in doing what Jesus demands or obeying his word. Christian, there's more to life than survival. There's more to life than than living just one more day. There's more to life than safety. To borrow from the, the authors, we have many other practical and moral concerns, don't we? Obeying the Bible, reaching the lost, living for Christ. We're concerned about our souls and the souls of other people. It's dangerous to be a Christian. There's risk involved. You might die for Jesus. These are realities for all of our brothers and sisters throughout church history. We are not exempt. But at the same time, this soul is entrusted to Christ. The Bible says that you've been bought with a price. And the Jesus who now owns that physical body that you inhabit, who perhaps in a scary way, but nevertheless in a perfect way, gives you instructions on how to to, to use it for the glory of God. The soul is the priority. That is why we can entrust Jesus with it. That's why we come after Christ, because we agree with that, and we feel that, and we sense that. Thirdly, finally, why would someone deny himself? Why take up our cross? Well, Jesus speaks of the surety of judgment. The surety of judgment. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Each of us will be judged. And this theme of judgment, this uh, theme of, of God evaluating our lives, it's, it's woven throughout the New Testament. We, we see it time and time again. In today's passage, we learn, for example, that Jesus is going to come back with his angels. The role of his angels in this judgment is to, to gather It's in Matthew 13. It's again in Matthew 24. He's even going to repay everyone according to their deeds. Elsewhere, the Bible speaks of this in in many different ways. We learn more and more about this the more and more we read. In Romans 2, there's going to be two groups at the judgment. There's those persevering and doing good and those selfishly ambitious, not obeying the truth. 2 Corinthians 5 locates this event. It's at a place called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. Colossians 3 teaches that the event happens, that Christ does this without partiality. And Revelation 20 identifies even a written record to be used, something called a book of life. And in the final chapter of the Bible, it's the Alpha and Omega himself, who promises, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he does. In a word, in the context of today's message, Jesus says, 
wait. Wait. Suffer now, reward later. Delayed gratification. Wait on that reward, believer. The disciple of verse 27 can take this verse not in fear and worry, but rather with encouragement, knowing that God indeed sees our good works and he will reward us. There is no sense of of fear for us here. The one who denies himself in this passage, the one who takes up his cross and follows Jesus, has great promise of reward. You and I, until that day, are to do hard things. To do hard things and, and live for Christ. This is what Jesus did. He, he, he did hard things and he calls you and I to do the same thing. This is a good place to stop for today. I want to address 20, verse 28 some other time. In today's passage, Jesus destroyed the concept of, of American Christianity. And he explained three habits of, of biblical Christianity. He spoke of denying ourselves and, and taking up our crosses and following him. And he even went on to explain why we should do this. He reminds us that we're going to live forever somewhere, that judgment is certain, and that we possess nothing more valuable than our souls. I'm reminded of a life who exemplified this, a woman who's modeled today's passage with such grace and perseverance. Her name was was Amy Carmichael, and Amy's best known for her missionary work in India. Over there, she founded an orphanage, and she founded a mission for young girls, That's significant because there in the Hindu temple system, some young girls are are put into a forced prostitution to order uh, money or or to earn income for the priests. Amy lived as a disciple of Christ, and she didn't live a safe life. Diseases spread. In her line of work, she could get sick, she could die. Priests would come looking for their girls. She suffered from neuralgia, that's a nerve pain, and because of a fall, the last two decades of her life, of her ministry, were spent running those orphanages from the confines of a bed. But Amy denies herself, and she takes up her cross, and she follows Jesus. Listen to her reflection on an event This occurred on the mission field. And she's writing of of a group of missionaries. She says, quote, They were unfair and curiously dominating in certain ways and words. One day I felt the eye in me rising hotly and quite clearly. So clearly that I could show you the place on the floor of the room where I was standing when I heard it. The word came. See in it a chance to die. To this day, that word is life and released to me as it is in so many others. See in this which stirs up all you wish 
were most not stirred up. See in it a chance to die in every form. Accept it just as that, a chance to die. This morning, believer, I offer you a chance to die. A chance to die, perhaps, in some big ways. Certainly a chance to die in many small ways. But in all ways, a chance to die for Jesus Christ. To deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. To live with him forever someday in heaven and to receive that reward of eternal life. To save your soul, the most important thing you'll ever possess apart from Christ. Oh, believer, the offer of a chance to die this morning is a chance to live. And to live truly. To deny yourself. To take up your cross. And to follow Christ.